All right, well, good morning, all. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Been in and out of 1 Peter now for a little while, and we've come to chapter 3, verse 8. And so, why don't I just read verse 8 and 9 together, and then I'll pray and we'll get cranking. To sum up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that it would be clear in this message that whatever good comes of it um, is not because of us, but because of Christ that works through us, that works through me. Lord, all of our lives on into eternity will be saying that same thing over and over, that We are who we are by the grace of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that that would just be so clear. Lord, that that I would decrease, that you would increase this morning, that your people would go away having dealt with you, having listened to your word, and and have taken care how they've listened, that they might be truly built up, renewed, corrected, exhorted, all these things. Again, Lord, so that we're stronger, so that there's peace, so there's unity, and so that there's fruit in our great mission here that you have sent us to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Now, Peter, um, I didn't have a lot of review prepared because I want to spend more time on this morning on the terminology here in this verse. But up until this point, Peter, especially in chapter 1, has captured our great salvation that has come about through Jesus Christ, the salvation that was prophesied before before this coming of Christ into the world. And this salvation has ramifications as to how we are to be living holy lives and how we are to um, love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. It also takes on in chapter 2, Peter tells us about our new identity now that the salvation has come to us that we are living stones, that we are a royal priesthood, that we are a chosen race, a holy nation, these kinds of things. And based on all of that glorious truth about our salvation, there is now an imperative that has come to us because of who God has made us, verse 11 of chapter 2, where Peter now turns and tells us things that we ought to be doing and implementing in our lives. He has mentioned it at some measure in chapter 1, but in chapter 2, verse 11 and following, he he really gets to the application of, 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 of the the instruction that he's given us about what God has done for us in Christ. And it's pertained to the way we should be as good citizens, as Christian citizens in this world, submitting ourselves to government, servants submitting themselves to masters, husbands living with wives in a certain way, wives living with husbands in a certain way. Your conduct matters. Your conduct is is an outflowing of how you understand what's happened to you in Jesus Christ and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And now in verse 8, 
after Peter has laid out all of these wonderful things, he is attempting to come to some sort of close. Now, jury's out on what kind of close he's achieved, but you'll see at the beginning of verse 8, Peter says these words, to sum up. Okay? To sum up. All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, etc. The term itself, to sum up, is, is the word that we, that we have for the end, or a word of completion. It's the word telos. It has the idea of bringing something to its desired end. Again, I don't know, Peter ends like I guess many of us teachers do. He thinks the end is going to be here, and yet he goes on for another couple chapters. But the reality is, is that he is bringing his previous thoughts to some sort of takeaway. Here's the takeaway. He's summing up sort of a takeaway that he is, is given, that he's giving to us from what has gone before. I don't know exactly what he's what verses he has in mind in the previous text that he's wanting us to sort of think of that he's bringing us back to. Maybe it's just the previous chapters in total. All the details about live, loving one another and from the heart in chapter 1 and then living excellent lives before unbelievers in chapter 2 and first part of 3. But either way, Peter is here finalizing a section here of previous truth with summary traits that if we take them to ourselves, we will do well. So Peter is wanting to give us a takeaway here. So what does he say? Well, first he appeals to all of us. He says that what I'm about to say is for all of you. It's universal. He says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious. All of you. No matter your age, no matter your gender, no matter your status, no matter your, what you think your personality traits are or are not, the things that he is about to give you are for you if you're in Christ. They are for you. All the brethren here are to adopt these character traits that, that Peter is going to lay out. The question is, are these particular attitudes that Peter is listing out for us here, are these things directed toward believers or unbelievers? In other words, are these traits of harmony and sympathy and brotherly love and, and kind-heartedness and these kinds of things, humble in spirit, are these directed at fellow believers or are these directed toward unbelievers or, or the watching world, so to speak? What makes it a little tricky to discern is the fact that this section sort of flows down um, to where Peter exhorts Christians to live righteously so they don't suffer wrongdoing. So that, at some measure, has to do with the watching world, the unbelieving world. That's where he's sort of moving. But in verse 8, I think that these traits are primarily aimed at the Christian congregation. I think these are things that, that certainly apply in, in terms of how we interact with the watching world. But I think specifically Peter has these traits in mind to adopt for the good of the brethren. And the reason I say that is this. Think of the language. Be harmonious. The term is actually like-minded. We're going to talk about it in a minute. Like-minded. Be like-minded. He's talking to the brethren. To be like-minded. Obviously, Peter isn't saying be like-minded as it pertains to the world in some way. We, we don't want to go there. This is clearly be like-minded amongst yourselves as Christians. Think about the term brotherly. It's the word Philadelphia. Brotherly. Certainly this is a term of affection toward the household of God or the family of God. So again, this, these terms affect, immediately or directly impact the way we view one another. 
these traits we are to have specifically toward and with one another. Now, I don't typically title my sermons. Marty does that, um, and that's fine. I don't so much care, but if I had to put a title on this message, um, I thought of this. I hope it's helpful. By, I, I call it the pixels of love. The pixels of love. These five terms, and actually even on into verse 9, really capture and give us a picture of what it is to have love in the body of Christ. You say the word love, and of course lots of things come to your mind, but for Peter, these terms here capture something of the essence of what it is to have a group of people that love one another. They are harmonious, they are sympathetic, they are kind-hearted, they are humble in spirit. So pixels of love, take it or leave it, that's my, that's my attempt at a title. All right, now, let's look at this term together, and I'm just going to tell you from the outset, we're only going to deal with the first word. And you might be like, oh, good grief, Chris. Here we go again. I'm going to bog down in a, in a verse. Well, I don't apologize for it, because this term, and I, and I, I proposed this to my wife last night, um, tell me what harmonious means. Right? You, as a body of believers, be harmonious. That's what the New American Standard says. Or be like-minded, as the ASV says, which is actually a better translation. What does that mean? And Paige said, well, it means to forbear with one another. I'm like, okay, is that it? Well, no, that's a part of it. Well, what does it mean? And as you begin to think about it, you think that there are layers to this term. There are layers to this term. So I thought we could spend a little bit of time thinking through it, and what you're going to find is it's actually a pervasive idea in the New Testament. First thing I want you to realize is that all these terms are adjectives. You know, they're adjectives. We've all been out of school, or a lot of us have been out of school for a while, but just a refresher, an adjective is a, is a word that describes a noun. Right? And these terms here are adjectives that describe these Christians. They are to describe us. They are to characterize us. Okay? These are things that are to characterize us. In other words, when people see New Covenant Christian Fellowship and, and maybe talk to us individual, individually, they are to think, wow, these people are like-minded. Wow, these, these people are sympathetic with one another. These people are kind-hearted. These people are humble in spirit. These words are adjectives. These are characteristic traits. They must be in us. And if these five terms, if they do describe us, and the word we're going to look at this morning, like-minded, if they do describe us, it means that there has been much work to achieve this harmony of mind and, and these other terms. These are things that aren't one and done. These are things you have to continually to work at. These are hard issues. But these are adjectives. If you want to know what true success is from the Lord's standpoint about a body of believers, this is it. Is the body this way with each other? All right. The issue of like-mindedness is strong in the New Testament. And I'm just mentioning a couple verses here. But if you think about it, Jesus' prayer before he goes to his death is actually one of the first instances, maybe not the first, but it's, it's one of the main features of his prayer to his Father. Father, I pray that they be one, those whom you have given me, even as you and I are one. Jesus Christ prays that we will have a unity that is like the unity 
he has with his father. It's pretty strong. A like-mindedness, a, 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 a same purpose, a same, a same mindset as to existence and reality and truth and eternity. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There's divisions in the church. Paul says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. I want you guys to think the same as it pertains to the role of preachers in the church. That was one of the issues going on in Corinth. There was celebrity preacher worship. Not that some of these preachers asked for it or wanted it, but that's what we do with men. We elevate them to statuses that they shouldn't have. But Paul says, I want you to have the same judgment about the place of, of, of preachers, about the place of men. I want you to all agree. I want you guys to be together on this. I don't want you to be on different pages, different wavelengths. Listen to Romans 15. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just think of that, that we would all be of such a mind, so united in the way we think that there's literally coming from this church one voice to glorify our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our heart and our affections would be centered in God, our Father, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This would be our everything and that we would be of such a like mind that we would, as it were, have one voice in glorifying Him through it. There's a lot we could say about Romans. But my point is just to point out that this is pervasive in the New Testament. In the book of Philippians, it happens over and over and over and over and over. Well, what does this term mean, like-minded? What does it mean? Again, as the NAS translates it, harmony. I I know what they're getting at, but I think like-minded is better. It means that the minds of Christ's people, the way we think and therefore the way we live, are in principle the same. That's that's what it means. To be like-minded is to think the same. Homo phronees. It just means a mind that is homogenous, as it were, with others. It's the same. We share a common mindset about who we are, our purpose, our mission, and how to achieve this mission. Paul says, I want you all to have that. I want you to be together in these things. Now, does this mean that all saints that he's speaking of are going to agree on every little decision together, right? That we all must shop at Costco? Or... Uh, you know, something sort of neutral like that. He's not referring to these amoral, neutral activities of life. You know, you can have your own fashion styles, and as long as they're sober-minded, you know, you can have your favorite TV show or movie or whatever it is, favorite restaurant. But in terms of our common authority for truth, our mission, purpose as a body of believers, to love one another and bring the gospel to those in darkness, that must be the same. That has to be pervasive. So if you grab Clayton and you talk to him, or you grab Justin and you talk to him, they're going to sound the same. They're going to talk the same. Their missions are going to be the same. Expressed differently, perhaps, in their life with different things. But that's fundamentally what their mindset is. 
That's what Paul is after. And like I said earlier, this is not easily achieved, and it's something that must be maintained. So how is it achieved? I I looked at this really hard. It is very hard to be able to present a clear-cut, demarcated category of how these things are achieved, steps, as it were. I I don't know. I I attempted to, to at least capture at least three things that I think that are the essence of harmony from what Peter is telling us here. I actually were able to boil them down to one word each. Okay. It's not an easy thing to do. Steve knows that. It takes more time to whittle things down than it is to have more explanation. All right. How is it achieved? Truth, mission, and love. I think these are the, th- these are the three things that Peter has in mind to achieve like-mindedness. Truth, a common mission, and love. These three things comprise this issue of harmony or like-mindedness. All right. So first, let's look at truth. Truth, by truth what I mean is that we are to be like-minded with our view that the Holy Scriptures is our exclusive sufficient source for truth. I didn't really plan on, I didn't know if Steve was going to, exactly what he was going to talk about this morning, but some of what he said here actually pertains to what my first point is here, that the Word of God is our authoritative and sufficient source for truth. And it means that we must all believe this if we are to be like-minded. We must, we must have a common objective source for truth, a, a common objective standard by which we are pushing, pushing all each other to conform to. We are seeking to conform our minds to God's mind. That's what the scriptures give us. They give us his mind on a matter, on, every, on, on so many things. So here at NCCF, if we're going to keep harmony that the Lord is pleased with, it means that his word must stay our exclusive source of authority. No preacher, no opinion, no book, no confession of faith can replace the holy scriptures. Paul says all scripture is God-breathed, theonoustos. He does not say the writers were inspired here. He says the writings themselves are inspired. So it's these writings themselves that are the very mind of God. What we hold in our hands, what you are reading this morning, is the very mind of God to you. Intended to be understood, intended to be obeyed, intended to be applied. The scriptures are our sufficient source. And it's honestly such a blessing It's such a blessing that we have an objective standard that can sort of, in some ways, take some of the emotion of our disagreements out, hopefully, over time. That we're like, when we have issues, we're like, well, wait, well, what does it say? So we can go back to it and have an objective standard that God has revealed that we can appeal to. We must all have this. And 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 I think that this is something that lots of places say they do, Lots of places don't want to say we don't see the Bible as our sufficient source for truth, our exclusive authority for truth. But when the rubber meets the road, how much of their own concoctions and thoughts about life and reality and whatever it is get imported back in here? I think it's important for us to realize that that God has spoken, we should listen, and we should apply to the best that we can by His grace. 
A conviction that this book is the living and authoritative word of God is vital for like-mindedness. Without the scriptures, any harmony we would have would just be man-centered, hollow, powerless, could help accelerate people to apostasy, honestly. We're going to talk about that here in a second. Now here's a sub-point of that. So the word of God is our exclusive source of authority. We must all have that in our minds and hearts. A sub-point of this is that this means that there should be harmony of belief, what you believe about something. We have a, I have a friend of mine that um, was here years ago, and um, they moved to a different place over on the north side of town, and he became an elder over there. And one of the things that he said that, that uh, he was encouraged to be at the place that he was, but one of the things he said was, the challenge is, though, that the eldership is all over the place in terms of what they believe. There's just there's lots of variation within the eldership about what they believe. And he said the, they don't plant very many theological flags as to their positions on this and that. He said one of the things he misses about New Covenant is the fact that we have lots of flags. We hope they're planted in the right places. We're trying to make them planted in the right places. But, but those flags, he felt, were very helpful because he, knows, he, he knew where we were on various items. And I think that's common. I think it's actually people applaud leadership that that sort of believe lots of different things. They try to make that as broad as possible in the hopes that we get a diversity of opinions, which somehow, I guess, is virtuous. Ultimately, I, I just don't see that in the New Testament at all with leadership, but even with us as Christians. There's a like mindedness that we are to have, certainly about the Bible, but then also about just what the Bible teaches. There's a harmony of belief. In other words, since we have a common source for truth, it means we must be about understanding that source of truth together. So there's harmony about what we believe. Well, and how many things? And what things? Well, what if you had the task of trying to delineate that? How many things should we agree about? Well, I'm just going to say everything. Let's work toward that. Because when you go to start picking and choosing things that God has said about this or that or the other thing and say, this is, not, this is negotiable, this is non-negotiable, it starts to get a little hairy, doesn't it? One of the beefs that some folks had with red letters, the red letter Bibles, uh, was because it tended to make the black letters seemingly not as powerful. But the reality is it's all the word of God, isn't it? Whether it's red or black, it's all the word of God. It's all the word of Jesus Christ. I know why they do it but ultimately it can, it can mislead us to the importance of things stated. Now I want to say something here, and uh, some of you might check out here, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm, sort of a de- I'm dealing with sort of a mindset that's common in Christian culture. And, and especially even in Reformed, gospel-centered culture. There is a common sort of paradigm in Christian culture that likes to speak in terms of essential and non-essential doctrines or first-tier, second-tier, third-tier issues to help in sorting out those doctrines that are more or less important to hold to for salvation, for fellowship, um, those kinds of things. In my opinion over the years as I've listened to the discussions, I ultimately find those categories unhelpful. I find them unhelpful. And potentially, they lead to an anemic, and sometimes an extremely anemic, unity in the body of Christ. Now, one of the places they go to, to to say that there are essential, non-essential doctrines, 
or first, second tier, third tier issues is 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says that, that I brought to you, Corinthians, that which was of first importance, the gospel. Right? He does mention that the gospel, when he came to Corinth, was of first importance. And they sort of, sort of extrapolate from this that the gospel's priority and everything else is, is sort of not as priority or not as essential and those kinds of things, which at some level, I agree. I understand why they say it. But let me just mention a couple points about this from 1 Corinthians 15. When Paul was saying that he came to them initially to plant the church in Corinth, his point, or when he's spelling out what he's spelling out in 1 Corinthians 15, he's not so much setting up a categorical system that the gospel's priority and all of his other teaching is not. He's saying that when he came to them, he didn't first come to them talking about church government. He didn't first come to them talking about men and women's roles. He first came to them, back when he did, you can read it in the book of Acts, with the word of the cross. That was priority when he came. Because when you're going on a church, church planting effort, this is the first thing that you bring. And you bring this and you saturate them with the word of the gospel and the word of the cross. That's what he says, I brought to you what was of first importance, meaning that's what I bring to you first. That's what he's saying. And obviously this remains the heart and soul of our lives after conversion too, but, but that's what he's getting at. And so subsequently or, or flowing from this, if you go away from Paul's language of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15, thinking that because the gospel was of first importance that now it's optional to understand and obey the rest of Paul, then you need to be corrected. Paul wasn't saying the gospel is binding, but all his other teaching is less binding. My point is that Paul, he just doesn't speak of essentials and non-essentials. And I know Romans 14 exists, we're going to touch that. But, but by and large, when you listen to Paul, you listen to Peter, you just don't get that. You just don't get that sense. Think about this for a second. Think of the topic of women's roles, for instance. You might think that being clear on a woman's role in the church, in the home, is a second tier issue. That is, until reality hits. Until certain women who want to come in and strong-arm leadership that's happened in our church before, they want us to do things their way. And they don't understand their role. They don't understand their place when the church is gathered of, of, of quietness. Teaching on meekness and submission would bring much peace and unity in the home of a woman who's dominating her husband. Again, we, we speak of essentials and non-essentials, but it's non-essential unless it's actually happening to you in your house. Then it becomes actually extremely important for the peace and the unity of your home. And again, I know why they say it. But again, I'm not sure how helpful it is. Or think about the, the husband. Think about the husband that thinks headship means that his wife has no say in the home. And he justifies his harshness with her as strong leadership. He needs to take a strong dose of what Paul is saying to men in their roles as husbands, to love their wives as Christ loved the church, nourishing, cherishing her. Or Peter's words that failing to honor your wife means your prayers, your spiritual life can be blocked by God. Your spiritual life can be hindered. Your prayers hindered if you don't know how to treat your wife. These things are not sort of second tier, optional understand, men and women's roles. This is a big deal. 
I mean, one could argue in the garden, getting out of your role, ultimately led to a lake of fire. What God has said matters. Our roles matter. Historically, the way that a church becomes apostate is by compromising on supposed secondary issues. They start to allow women pastors. And then the Spirit of God is grieved, the Word of God is domesticated, explained away, and then there's no impact for the gospel anymore. Again, I understand why people use the categories, but I want to say that, you know, that, that I don't feel like uh, they can be that helpful. People want to say that there are things we can disagree about and still be saved, and this is certainly true. But the New Testament just doesn't speak like this on most things. Part of the reason for this, I think, is because these non-essential issues are actually expected and normative byproducts of the gospel and the obedience it enables and requires in the New Testament. In other words, to Paul and to Peter and to the other writers, many conduct issues, role issues, are a byproduct of the true gospel and its fruit. So I want to spend a minute here in Titus. So turn to Titus, if you would. You can kind of hear and see what I'm on about here. Titus chapter 2. You can listen on if you'd like. When you think of sound doctrine, you probably think Trinity, deity of Jesus, hypostatic union, um, those kinds of things. And those, that's true. Don't get me wrong, that's not true. Or that, that is true. But it's not... It's not all there is to say about what sound doctrine is. It's not all there is to say about the teaching that actually brings health to a body of believers. Listen to what Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 1 through 15. But as for you, Paul talking to Titus here, his sort of apostolic delegate there to help set in order the, the things that are going on in Crete, new church plant, trying to get them sorted out, give them elders that are qualified and those kinds of things. Now Paul is telling Titus, this is what you need to speak. Titus, this is what you need to speak. This is what you need to bring to the people. As for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Okay, like what? Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. If I said, what is sound doctrine to you, is that what you would come up with? (laughs) If I hadn't read Titus a thousand times, I probably wouldn't have come up with it because it just doesn't immediately come to the surface you think high theological christological things but paul thinks older men are to be dignified they are to be those who persevere they are to be people that are sensible sound in faith these are the things that they need to imbibe these terminology these terms need to be their terms titus preach these things okay what about older women older women likewise to be reverent in their behavior reverent in their behavior they fear god not malicious gossips They don't go around trying to tear people down to others. They're not enslaved too much wine. Good teachers are teaching what is good. Well, what is that? So that they may sober up the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. These are the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. Older women have a certain character that you can help train the younger women to be sober-minded, to love your husbands, to love your children, to be workers at home, to be kind. Those kinds of things. Why? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. It's a big deal. It's a big deal when a woman doesn't know her place, when older women don't know their places. 
When older men doesn't, don't know the, the characteristic traits that they're to have. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, the young men are to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Purity and doctrine. Purity and doctrine. Young men, not just pastors. Young men. Purity and doctrine. Doctrine that is not profaned. Teaching that is not profaned. Dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame. Having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, showing all good faith, so they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. See, that's what it comes down to. You claim that you know God. You claim that you've been saved by God. You claim to know Jesus Christ. That has a certain clothing to it. That has a certain, uh, that has a certain application to it. And Paul is laying out for Titus the application of what that gospel brings forth. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Titus, last verse here is important. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus, if these older men are becoming crass and cynical, tell them they must be dignified. Timothy, if these older women are becoming malicious gossips, you must understand with all authority you need to tell them to hold their tongues and to have love. Timothy, these young women, if they're getting out of their place and they're becoming idle and they're in busybodies in everybody else's life, you need to go to them and you need to tell them to stop it. This does not adorn the doctrine of God and the gospel well. And on and on. This is the thing, these are the things that Paul puts to Titus. I mean, Titus has three chapters. And this is what he gives him as sound doctrine. So what we find in Titus 2 are these character traits that must be adopted and lived out so that God is honored, the word of God is honored, Satan is shamed, and the gospel truly bears the fruit God intended it to bear in your life. And Paul says it's the grace of God that teaches you to live like Paul points out to Titus. And the man of God is not to shrink back from declaring these things with all authority. So, again, just lots of different things in Titus 2, but things that you just don't get the sense that they're sort of non-essential things. Just things, nice things to consider. Maybe write a book about them. Think about it at your leisure. Paul says, if you don't adopt them, the word of God very well probably will be dishonored. That's a big deal. How about things like the second coming? Again, second tier issue for most. Not the fact that he is coming. That's, they would say, first tier. But, but any more than that. Well, it's interesting that Paul speaks of it as, he doesn't speak of it as second tier, non-essential. He spends two letters. Large part in 1 Thessalonians and a huge part, if not almost the whole thing, in 2 Thessalonians, clarifying the nature and application of the second coming to the Thessalonians. You wouldn't think that, right? With the way people talk about eschatology today, it doesn't really matter. For Paul, it mattered a lot. They had a view that w- of the second coming that was compelling many of them to stop working. They had a view that m- many of them were in, were in great grief because they were wrongly thinking that, that those 
loved ones dead in Christ were not going to be raised in the same way the others were, who were alive at his coming. Jesus was emphatic too, wasn't he? That he said, when he begins to talk about his coming, he says, let no one deceive you. Again, you just don't get the sense that there's secondary, tertiary. I mean, again, I understand why the discussion exists. It's just the New Testament, by and large, doesn't talk like that. God has spoken. We don't have the right to put an item into a disputable matter unless the Lord has given us principles to do so. So let's think about Romans 14. And I'm not going to read the whole passage. Most of you know it. Read a little bit of it. Romans 14. Paul says here, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, he, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who does eat, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servants of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will make him stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So on and so forth. Many of you are familiar with this passage. But Paul is basically saying in Romans 14, you've got a mixed church. You've got Jews and Gentiles, and how are they going to get along? One thinks the Sabbath's holy. The other ones are like, what's the Sabbath? And how do you get these people to come together? They're like, oh, you haven't heard about the dietary laws? They're like, well, no, I haven't heard about the dietary. Well, if you really want to follow the Lord, you need to follow the dietary laws. And so there's this conflict. But because the old covenant is obsolete, the new covenant now is what stands, we find ourselves in a different jurisdiction, then therefore lots of these things that were binding are no longer binding. And so Paul is applying that reality, that these things aren't binding anymore, but he recognizes that many people will continue to hold to some of these things because of their past, and they can do it under the Lord and honor him, and, and Paul said, that's fine. Well, I don't know if he says that's fine. He says some are weak in faith. But he does say with days, if someone wants to hold it that way, that's between them and the Lord. With these kinds of preferential conscience issues that the New Testament bears out, food and drink and holy days, so to speak, each person must be convinced in his own mind, but not view them as binding upon all other members. Doesn't mean you don't discuss them with Bibles open. I would encourage you to do that. It just means if you end up saying, for instance, that Sunday is, is a Sabbath to you and you're not going to watch football, that's between you and the Lord. But again, because Sabbath is no longer a binding normative principle in the New Covenant, you don't have that right to impose that restriction on me. So it's vital in this regard that we understand even the things that are in the realm of preferential or, or matters of conscience. On such items we must accept one another and seek to understand one another. Not let these things bring division, holding them in the right, with the right grip. Again, sitting down in a discussion the Bible's open is extremely important. We're so quick to think that because someone said something here, this is everything they believe as you extrapolate it out and you don't sit down and talk with them. So I appreciate, that's why I appreciate so many of you that if you have questions, you feel like you can come to Steve and I and talk through them. We want that. And we very well may need to be corrected ourselves. But that's because we have one objective standard. But, but even on conscience issues, it's good to talk through them. Because think about it. Think about things like Halloween. Halloween just went past. Right? 
Lots of opinions about Halloween, right? Lots of opinions. You may be strongly against it, and I understand why. I mean, it's, it's in many ways a, a time where people glorify death and gore and blood and horror, demonic stuff. There's no doubt about it. But others may not quite see it this way. Others may want to redeem it, interact with neighbors for the gospel's sake, like we did. Or just relegate the time to a fall tradition on that day without glorying in death and horror and all those things. Again, these things are preferential. We have to be careful how we regard one another in these things. So one, one person brought this, the Halloween thing up to me and I talked to them about what we did and there was great understanding. They personally didn't want to do anything with it. That's totally up to them. That's fine. I, I get it. There's TV, movies, sports, books, schooling, guns, all these things. These, these are things that, again, we can agree to disagree on some of these things. But with Romans 14 in mind, this sort of leads to a second principle of harmony and like-mindedness. And that is, the reason that we accept one another is because we have a shared mission. We accept one another in sort of these conscience issues, preferential issues, because we have a shared mission and we don't want to overturn that mission. As the church of Jesus Christ, we must have a common mission to bring the gospel to those in darkness, which takes unity to be truly effective. And now this flows from the word of truth that we described earlier, that sort of our common standard of of truth in the scriptures. As we read the word of truth, we see that its fundamental purpose is to reveal and explain God's salvation plan in Jesus Christ. This, This redemptive mission that Jesus bled for is the mission we must take up as a church. We're to take on the the mindset of the Apostle Paul who says that I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Our like-mindedness has to fundamentally be toward the ongoing belief and confidence in and promotion of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And unity and peace in the body is vital for this to to happen. If you don't have unity in the church, if you don't have agreement in the body, if people aren't sort of all swimming in the same direction, you can't be a very effective group, can you? in the gospel together. This is Paul's great concern. Listen to Philippians 1.27. Paul says this to the Philippians, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that's interesting. Your conduct needs to be worthy of the gospel you believed. Conduct matters. It needs to be conduct worthy of that gospel. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So we must all agree, scriptures are clear, that the gospel is everything, that that our mission here is to bring this gospel to one another and to the nations, to the dark places of this world. This is vital. Paul says, faith of the gospel. That is, he's talking about the, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings about faith in those who hear. 
So we need to be about the mission of bringing this gospel to the world that men and women believe and are saved. It means that we proclaim the gospel and its entailments to one another so that our faith is increased more and more. We don't ever leave the gospel. Ever. It's in everything we talk about. Even if we're talking about men and women's roles, it's tied to the gospel, isn't it? Because it's in men and women's roles that it's conduct that's worthy of the gospel. It's a gospel issue in that sense. Paul wants the believers to proclaim the gospel to the outside and to one another. This is his point in Romans 1. He, he was eager to preach the gospel to the church in Rome, certainly to save them, some who are, who are not genuinely saved, but equally to highlight the work of Jesus Christ, that, that ungodly people can be made right with God through the cross, and that's a message we need to continually hear. I know I do. And so the fact that the gospel's our mission it means we must be clear on what it is, Right? We're all going to have different abilities to articulate it, but we need to understand what it is, and it needs to remain central in all that we do. So, harmony is achieved in truth, harmony of belief, and the things that are clearly stated, not conscience issues, preferential, there's going to be some disagreement in there. Our mission, that the gospel is everything to us, that, that we can't ever leave that, And this will be ensured if we have love. This will be ensured if we have love. So love is is sort of the last um, leg of the stool, so to speak. Philippians 2, 1 through 3. Paul says again to the Philippians, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete, by being of the same mind, see there it is, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. It's interesting here, Paul is appealing to their experience. He's saying, have you experienced the encouragement in Jesus Christ? Have you been, have you been strengthened in Jesus Christ? Have you been comforted by his love? Have you had fellowship of the spirit? Any affection and compassion? Then... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. He, he's saying, have you, have you had these experiences of Christ and his love and his spirit? Then extend this to the brethren. It doesn't stop with you privately. It goes to the brethren. Make my joy complete by having the same love issue forth in love for others. What is love? Love is just ultimately living your life for the good of others. It's really as Jesus revealed to us and, and expressed that we're to have this love toward one another. Certainly a love that forbears and a love that believes all things, a love that hopes all things. These are the things that Paul is getting at. But it's this kind of love that we need to extend one another so that we are of the same mind, so that we are united in spirit. It takes love to keep a body together, brethren. It does, 100%. You know why? Because I'm going to offend you you're going to offend me. And, and, and that's, just, that's just what's going to happen. Relationships are messy. I think there was a book called that, like On the Body of Christ, Relationships are Messy. And they are messy. And you know what's going to help get us through that is love. Love connected to the gospel. Love connected to what Christ has done so that we view ourselves as we're dirtball sinners that, that deserve the wrath of God, basically. <laughs> and yet Jesus Christ comes, takes our sin upon himself, and gives us grace 
and the righteousness we need before God to know him, to be reconciled to him, not because of anything we've done. And we need to have this attitude in others. When people offend us, we can't take up vindictive mindsets, retaliatory mindsets. We can't have that. We have to have love that wants to continue together, no matter the offense. Again, you, would, you deal with offenses differently, but ultimately, love wants to be united. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians 13. It's possible, it's possible, and the reason I wanted to put love in here because it's so vital, it's non-negotiable, it's possible to be clear on truth and yet not to have love. And you become, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, a clanging gong. We can be a place that so emphasizes truth in a way that it's that all the time and only that ultimately we give no place for love. And Paul says, if this is what you're after, then you can become a clanging gong. Listen to what he says. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries, knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Think about that. If I have faith so as to remove mountains, if I'm just the guy that wants to you know, move a mountain because I've got so much faith and yet I'm doing it at the expense and with a motive that isn't good for the whole body of believers that's with me, I become also somebody that, that ultimately is not profiting anything because I'm not doing it with love. Think about that. Paul says you can have your body be burned. Give yourself over to be burned but not have love and it means nothing. How important is love? This is why sometimes when we get together in corporate prayer meetings, this is the thing that we need to pray for all the time is love, that we would have love for one another. Think about that. Giving your body to be burned, not from love. Why else would you do it? Well, maybe you want to be a hero. Maybe you want your name to go down in the history books. These kinds of things. But none of that, none of that has a place in the church of Jesus Christ. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Is not arrogant. Is not act unbecomingly. Does not seek its own. Not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Letting a lot of stuff roll off your back in the church. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Rejoices with the truth. Love and truth go together. They're not mutually exclusive. They hang together. They, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's love. Love is so vital. Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus. Here's a group of believers that started well Paul planted this church by God's grace. And it's a church that started well, a church that Paul had his heart attached to intensely. But it's a church that became cold, so to speak. They were a stalwart bunch when it came to truth and even persevered in trials. They were experts in pointing out false teachers. And Jesus commends them for this. He's saying, yes, you found them to be false. That's good. They needed to be pointed out. He doesn't ding them for that. He doesn't say, get less truth, more love. He says, you've got truth, but you're missing something that's vital, that without it, this ultimately won't mean anything. Because he comes to them with the admonition to repent. He'll remove their candlestick. He says they lost, they left their, the love they had at first. They left their first love. Their love for Christ, their love for one another, their love for sinners was being left behind. That's scary stuff. You can have a place so emphatic on just truth. 
and exposing falsehood that you leave love behind. Brethren, we must abide in Jesus Christ. We've got to keep our hearts right in all our discussions, all our disagreements, all of our interactions if we're to maintain love and affection in the body of Christ. We pursue truth and love equally. And the way we pursue truth is not like a bull. We pursue truth with love. Just think about Paul going to false teachers. He says, look, telling Timothy, you, you need to go to these false teachers. They're teaching things that are, that are horrible and corrupt and they're, they're gangrenous. Go to them in gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perchance the Lord may grant them repentance. So you'd think Paul would be like, blast them, Timothy. And he does say, confront them, but he says, do it in gentleness. Again, love governs the way we bring forth the truth. So for a final, few final minutes here, what are threats to like-mindedness? What are threats to harmony? We talked about the fact that it's truth, it's gospel mission, and love is sort of what keeps it all together. What are threats to this? Well, selfishness. Selfishness can certainly militate against harmony. Paul in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Thinking that a church exists for your personal dreams and your personal ministry rather than the other way around to edify others is a way to bring division and conflict and bitterness. Put away selfishness. Harmony is not achieved with it. That's why when people seek to do a work, you know, they want to do something for the body, which is awesome, great. Steve and I encourage, hey, brainstorm on the good works you can do in the community in here. Please talk to us before you do it so that we can be a part of it and maybe help navigate and guide that. Make sure it's your gifting, those kinds of things. But I always tell them, make sure you do it for the right reasons. If you do it just so that you can get your, you know, a pats on your back, you're doing it for the wrong reason. And you'll end up mad at everybody when, they don't, when you, people don't show up to your event like you thought they would. And it really exposes why you did it in the first place. Put away selfishness. Theological error is a threat to harmony. Paul's words to Timothy. Timothy, correct these men so that falsehood is stopped. I mean, this is the first chapter of Timothy. Shut down strange teaching. Shut down gangrenous teaching. Theological error can bring gangrenous ideas into the church. And tied to that, what can be a threat to harmony is a lack of correcting that. So it's one thing to have it in the church. That can bring disunity and division. And then it can make it worse when it's not corrected. Does that make sense? Again, think of the church in Revelation. Jesus says to the, to the church in Revelation, you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idol. You tolerate her. Why are you tolerating this in the church? Tolerating error can bring immorality and the reproof of Jesus Christ. Personal conflict and offense. An offense. Many of you remember in Philippians, Eudia, Euodia, and Syntyche. Two women. Paul says this, I urge Eudia, Euodia, and I urge Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is a phenomenal passage. 
I mean, these women, you know, their names are forever in the Word of God for all of us to read about the fact that they didn't get along, but that they should have, and that the body is to be the ones to mediate to bring them together. So it's interesting, isn't it? The fact that you have two ladies sound in the faith and gospel-centered and still couldn't get along tells us none of us are above this. None of us are. And yet it doesn't mean that we're to do nothing about it just because it very well could happen and will happen from time to time. Paul expects the brethren here in the church to help them achieve harmony. He doesn't want them to stay that way. He mentions their names publicly. Certainly many of, many of the people, many people in the Philippian church must have known this. And he mentions their names publicly just because they weren't getting along. We think we go public with names when it's like, you know, the last stage of church discipline. Paul's like, these ladies aren't getting together. Every time they, they're around each other, they avoid each other. They're, they're talking about their upsetments with one another. Help them out. Let, bring, that, bring harmony. How important is a right, right relationship? There was a guy who preached a sermon called on this issue of harmony, and, it's, and it was called Every Relationship Right. And it's so simple and clear, and that's exactly what Paul is after. Every relationship in the church must be right. You, may, you must strive to seek after that. Sometimes you, you, you do what you can, as it depends on you, and they still won't. But let it not be because of you that the relationship isn't fixed. Jesus has lots to say about that. Apathy. Apathy is a threat to harmony. Apathy and neglect of the gospel, a neglect of your Christianity. If you are apathetic and you begin to drift away, you lose your zeal for the kingdom. You're not fighting for this. And hey, we all struggle with it. We all struggle with keeping that light burning. We must encourage one another to stay zealous. All contributing. Harmony assumes that all people are singing. Christ is clear that lukewarmness is not optional. Please understand that. You become self-sufficient in your life and you think this, you, you, you don't need us, you don't need the body, you don't need the word of God, you, you don't need all that stuff. Maybe you'll have it from time to time and you begin to drift, you become lukewarm. Jesus has no use for you. It's on you at that point. You've got to realize where you're at and repent and do the deeds you did at first, Jesus says to the church at Laodicea. That's scary, but, but that's not what we want. We want people all going in one direction. We're not just floating, stagnant, right? We're going in one direction. All right, loose living with regard to sin. What does Paul say about the man that's sleeping with his mother-in-law? We can't be loose living with regard to sin. Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You don't need much of it. Before long, Paul says others are going to be committing sexual immorality too. That's his point. This mindset goes unchecked. This immorality goes unchecked. It'll run through the whole body. That's what Paul sees. And again, connected to that is a lack of dealing with sin in the camp. Not just sin in there. It might do some damage. But then you address it and it's checked. But if you don't check it, it makes more, of, more damage can be done. That's why Paul says, remove the wicked man from among you. <laughs> and then this last one here. I think this is an important one. When your giftings become a means of judgment on others, that can also threaten harmony. Here's what I mean by that. 
we must be very glad for the variety of the works and the gifts that we have in the body of Christ. And we have a lot of them here. Everybody has a post on the wall. Everybody's got a hole they're filling to try to work for the Lord and his kingdom, at least I hope in some measure. Some of you may not, and you need to. But a lot of us do. And I was thinking about this as an example of what I'm getting at. Gwen is a guardian ad litem. She does it because there are so many families that are broken and she wants to be light in these situations, in these, in these families that are travesties, in these children's lives that are utterly broken and in shambles. Gwen could easily look at all the need that's there in that world, in that world of addiction, in that world of, of just immorality, abuse. She could look at that and say, look at all the need there. Every Christian needs to be doing that. And what can happen when you begin to take this on is you can begin to use this great work as a judgment on others. It can happen with anything. It can happen with door-to-door evangelism. It's a great work. It's a wonderful work. I wish more people would do it. I encourage you go do it. But I know that not everybody will do it. Piedmont Women's Center, not every lady's going to do it. Miracle Hill Preaching, not everybody's going to do that. We all have differing gifts and employ them for the building up the saints and the salvation of sinners. Some ladies are waist deep in schooling their kids and they're not going to be as available as others. Maybe they, maybe they, maybe they make meals or the desserts for the uh, Miracle Hill preaching that some of you ladies have done. And it's a huge encouragement to me to know that you spent this time making this dessert so that we could take it for the sake of the gospel. That's awesome. I love that. It may seem small, but it's something very vital. I mean, seriously, some of these desserts have led to conversations with people in the truth. It's just, a, it's just a lure. It's what it is. We're going fishing, you know. And Tanya's desserts catch fish, you know. At least get them on the line. Sometimes we can't reel them in. The most important principle, though, is that we must all be zealous for good works and the gospel. And, and this manifests itself in the multiplicity of giftings. Paul emphasizes in 1 Corinthians 12 this, this word over and over, this, these words, the same spirit, by the same spirit, by the same spirit, someone does this. By the same spirit, there's a, a various ministries, diffs, differing gifts here and differing gifts there. We don't all do the same thing. Now, if someone is not zealous for good works, and they're not laboring to meet needs and, and labor for the gospel in their own capacities, then this is an issue that needs to be reproved. If you've become lazy and apathetic and, and your only free time is spent on working out and nothing for the gospel, then you've got an issue. You've got a problem. You need to invest in labor in the kingdom. You bury your talent that Jesus Christ has given you and we all have them, whatever they are. You bury them, it's bad news for you in the day of judgment. This is important to understand that we all have contributions to make. We need you. You need us. And it means that we do our giftings with the corporate body in mind. When I go to Miracle Hill to preach, I genuinely know that people are praying for me. If that was just my own little ministry 
and I never really mentioned it to anybody, it would just, I would miss out on so much blessing, you would miss out on praying for it, right? And then if the Lord is bearing fruit, we all rejoice together. This is the point. This is harmony. One voice glorifying our God and Father because we're in harmony in the gospel together, each having their different roles and parts. So on and so forth. So I think you get my point. That's all I had. I'm, I know I went over four minutes or so. So, But this is what I think Peter is after. Peter wants a people that are like-minded because they have a common foundation of truth, a common mission, and they're held, to, held together by love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I just pray that what was helpful you would cause to stick in everyone's minds and hearts. And um, Lord, just thank you for this food that we're about to eat, um, this time together. Lord, thank you for what you've done in bringing us all together. Um, Lord, just thank you for all your goodness to us in Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.